Those things looking over there. Good. We can uh, turn in our Bibles, please, to Haggai chapter 2. That's probably where you want to be first. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, and then also Malachi chapter 4. Um, we'll start in Haggai after a bit of an introduction and some, some review here, but I want to remind you where we're headed. We began four weeks ago by beginning with the end, and the end of Malachi is this. I'll read you the last verses of Malachi so we know where we're headed. <laughs> Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the, great, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we ask for understanding of spiritual things that can only come by your Holy Spirit. So we pray for your anointing, for your guidance. Uh, we thank you for the promises of Scripture. We thank you that it is your desire, uh, not just for the hearts of your children and to turn our hearts back to you, our loving Father, but also your heart is for our families. And we thank you for that. I, I pray that today our, our time spent in, in Scripture would not only benefit us as your, as your body, that we would be strengthened and nourished by this living word. Um, but we, we pray that even our understanding would be, we would give way to praise, that every blessing you pour out would turn back to praise. We ask you to be glorified by our time spent now. We offer you ourselves, our attention, and the thoughts and, and meditations of our hearts, uh, the affections of our hearts. And we pray that you would give us your presence and that we would be changed by it. We ask these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 I am, uh, I'm happy you're here. Thanks for coming, uh, especially since m m most of you didn't, I guess. Um, but but I, it's Thanksgiving. That's fine. Um, but th thanks for coming to this study specifically. I know it's different. You know, we've been just this month of November has been a little, little different. We're doing two books at, at once because I thought I'd try that. Um, it's Old Testament, which I know is a... Uh, a bit harder for some people, so thank you, thank you for coming and studying Scripture here uh, with me. Um, I'm I'm confident that it's a study that we needed. You know, the Lord knows what we need of before we ask Him, so I'm confident that November 2023 we needed a good dose of Malachi and Haggai, uh, and so we're we're here for it. We we need these prophets, and we need both of them to remind us of the importance of God's work across time, across multiple generations. Now, of course, every time we open the Bible, we're opening a very old book that was addressed to people who lived a long time ago. And hopefully in realizing that, we become more grateful for all the generations in between that have passed on the faith from generation to generation. We're thankful for the people who copied the scriptures. We're, we're thankful that we have Bibles that other people worked at to get to us. We're thankful for Christians who have lived lives of faith and died good Christ-honoring deaths so that we have these, these shoulders to stand on. Right, But a, a point of Malachi and Haggai, when you compare them together, is that we see there's a need to pass on the faith to future generations because it, it's not a foregone conclusion that they are going to walk in the ways of their fathers. Now, the pastors and theologians of the first few centuries of the church age are affectionately called the church fathers. Right, Paul, who was a pastor and a teacher, he says to the Corinthians, you have many teachers 
you know, Corinthians. They had all their podcasts, all the YouTube channels. They had many teachers, but not many fathers. And he draws a distinction between a person who just shares information and a person who parents. Why the distinction? Because we know that the things that things of our faith are as much caught as they are taught. In Haggai, today we'll see also that corruption can be caught, even if you're not teaching it with words. But a child, we know a child learns things from his father that the father has no idea he's teaching. It's something that's passed down because what the father practices becomes what is taught and then handed down to future generations. That didn't happen well between Haggai and Malachi. Uh, but there's hope at the end of Malachi and even a promise from God saying, I will be the one who tends the hearts of the children and points them towards their fathers. And I will be the one who, by sending this, this person in the spirit and the power of Elijah, who will turn the father's hearts towards their children where there's this awareness and this intentionality of practicing that which ought to be replicated. Okay, one of the problems that Israel had faced during the times of these prophets, one of the central problems that influenced their failure was that fathers weren't raising their sons. Uh, or to be more precise, it was that fathers were teaching their children by their behavior, and the behavior wasn't good. They were teaching, by way of example, that spiritual things are not worth being cared about. They were teaching that worship was optional, unimportant, and really kind of a burden, actually. Something to be taken lightly at best to be ridiculed at worst. Fathers were teaching their children by their behavior that there were more important things than their religious life. In many cases, with the abandonment of wives and children, we read about that in Malachi chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 13. In many cases, they were teaching their children that you're not important either. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. A corruption of worship and the destruction of families will always be subjects of his attack. And they'll go hand in hand. Now, to get the whole picture of how bad the family situation was for these people, you really got to read through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we'll be starting Nehemiah in our Wednesday, Thursday Bible studies in January. But you'll remember we read a bit of this a couple weeks ago when Malachi was teaching, uh, preaching on divorce. What was happening was that there were men in Israel who were not raising their children in the faith. They weren't even raising their children to speak Hebrew. There was a cultural divide between fathers and their children because uh, fathers were not being diligent to introduce their children to the culture that the children had a right to. It was their inheritance. Now, I know this is somewhat of a simplification, but just because it's simple doesn't make it less important. Fathers stopped raising their children in the faith. That's how you ended up with a temple and no one to care for it. And it's why we needed a guy like Malachi to show up to that generation and remind them of the things that Haggai prophesied, and then remind them all the way back to Moses, the things, the things of God that these children had a right to accessing, um, but had been denied, essentially, by a culture of apathy and carelessness. Now, knowing these things, that both truth and error need to be passed down, it's not a classroom thing, really. There's, there's truth and error are both caught as much as taught. And knowing that that our children, your grandchildren, whoever those people are in your life who are going to be running the world in 10 or 20 years, know that they are influenced by where your heart is and what's more, by what your habits are. Now, knowing that, ask yourself if the future is bright or not. Let this question be in your mind as we finish up this study in these two prophets. Now, again, we're going to start in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. And when we're done with that, we'll flip over to Malachi chapter 4, 
Uh, at this point in Haggai's timeline, in Haggai chapter 2, about halfway down, the people were walking in obedience. At least that's what it looked like. In the beginning of Haggai 1, they weren't. Remember, they were neglecting the Lord's orders to build a temple. By the end of Haggai chapter 1, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was that governor I talked about in the communion message, by the way, in Ezra chapter 3, the governor that said, you can't eat the holy things because you don't know who your dad is. That was Zerubbabel. Um, so under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest, these people are building the temple, which is great. And then chapter 2 comes along, and the prophet is encouraging them. Haggai, along with his friend Zechariah, they're saying this temple is going to be greater than Solomon's. A glory is going to come to this temple that's greater than the glory that was there, the desire of nations. It's Jesus. It's okay. We can say it out loud. It's Jesus. They didn't know that, though. Uh, it, he's going to come to this temple. Um, and so the people are excited, and, and they've been promised success. They're finishing up the temple construction. And then now halfway into the second chapter, Haggai has this message about holiness and then promises of God's faithfulness. His message is simply the Old Testament version of the well-known Christianese proverb, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a happy meal, right? That's what Haggai is saying. He says it a lot better, though, actually. So in verse 10, Haggai chapter 2, you can follow along. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Corruption, it turns out, is contagious. Health is not contagious. We know this. A sick person in a room full of healthy people isn't getting better just by breathing in all that health. You know, there's no proverb about the effect a good apple has on all the rest. It's the bad apple. The, the Lord is saying that ceremonial cleanliness works along these same lines, that this reflects something else in the hearts and lives of the people. He says, so is every work of their hands. The people and their work were unclean, like, like they had touched a dead body. Now, Haggai has been pretty encouraging on the whole. And Haggai said, build the temple, and the people are doing it. It's a mostly a positive prophecy overall, but, but here we have a warning. It's a correction sandwiched between two messages of hope in Haggai, hope and joy. And the warning is this, just because you're in the Holy Land, that doesn't make you holy. Just because you're building the temple, which will see holiness itself, that doesn't make you holy. There's another need that these people had that couldn't be solved just by hanging around God's stuff. What they needed was for God to be their king and their God and their savior who cleanses them. They needed an act of divine healing from God himself that couldn't be achieved simply by being near or touching holy things. As when a holy thing touches something unclean, it doesn't make it holy. You guys are the unclean ones. And yeah, you've got a temple and that's great, but it's God who cleanses you. It doesn't depend on your ceremonial cleanliness or liturgies. And this is exactly what God is going to offer. 
When you read this chapter slowly, you study it, it's kind of surprising to see what isn't said, right? The Lord comes to these people in the, his message through the prophet Haggai. He says, you are unclean. It's, it's like you've touched a corpse, and then you expect the next line. You know, you anticipate what the message is going to be after that. It should be something like, wash your hands, you dirty sinners. Like, that should be the next thing, right? Or depart from me into outer darkness if you want to go, like, in that direction. That's not what the Lord speaks through Haggai. What he says in the rest of this passage is this. Your life has been difficult, and from now on, I'm going to bless you. That's the message. Instead of the condemnation that you might expect to hear from an Old Testament prophet, Haggai says, you're guilty. Oh, yeah, and God is generous. You are defiled. Everything you bring is corrupt, and I'm going to bless you from here on out. That sounds a whole, like a whole lot of gospel to me. Listen for this grace upon grace that the prophet preaches in these next verses. Verse 15, and now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, and pomegranate, and olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. That's the message the prophet brings. This was the message that was supposed to be passed down to the grandkids. We didn't deserve it. We were corrupt. We had nothing to our name. We were building the temple, and the Lord said it was actually just out of his mercy. And it is this goodness of God that leads man to repentance. In verses 14 through, or sorry, 10 through 14, we learn that the people are defiled. In verses 15 through 19, we see that their lives have been hard. But at the end of verse 19, we simply read that God is going to bless them. With this prophet's preaching firmly in their hearts, the people would be prepared once that blessing comes, once the windows of heaven were opened, they would be able to say, this was not of ourselves, but the gift of God. This is grace upon grace. We didn't earn any of these blessings, but God is so generous and kind to us. God, through the prophet Haggai, is assuring his people, my blessings aren't sourced from your performance. Now, are there blessings for obedience? Yeah, there are. If you obey, there are blessings there. It's just like staying in your lane in traffic. You go over to the left one, there's consequences. It's the lack of blessing, you might say. Uh, okay, they, yes, there, there, are, there are positive consequences for obedience, but let it be known that it was while this people was in a defiled state that God promises, I'm going to bless you from here on out. I'm just going to. Now, this bit about God showing mercy on the undeserving and reaching out to save while they are in the most need of saving and his demonstrating of his love towards them while they were still sinners, that echoes all the way into the New Testament real well, of course, but it's also going to echo into Malachi. Stay tuned. We're not there yet, but it's coming up. The final part of the book of Haggai is directed to the governor, a man named Zerubbabel. You may know him from Matthew chapter 1. He shows up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Actually, he's in both Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. He is the nearest common ancestor for both Mary and Joseph. He's descended of David. He has a right to reign, but never becomes king. Instead, he fills this role of, of governor with the approval of a foreign power. There's still a Gentile emperor named Darius who will ensure that Zerubbabel never becomes a Davidic king, but that won't stop the Lord from building his kingdom. 
Read on in verse 20. It says, And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord. Now, all of the, these things, the shaking of heaven and earth, the overthrowing of kings and kingdoms, Zerubbabel could do none of those things and would see none of those things happen. But God would do them anyway. That's grace. Grace in the long term. Israel would have a king who is above and beyond all other kingdoms, the king of the Jews. And this would not be because Zerubbabel was powerful or great or awesome. His glory, if any, would be in that he was in God's hands like a signet ring that God chose. That's his glory. Zerubbabel could receive the encouragement and see that his authority as governor of the people was not derived from any lesser source. He had been placed where he was, not by Darius, but by the living God who held him in his hand, who was promising to work in, through, and beyond him. Of course, these promises that would be fulfilled in the near future by Zerubbabel would find their fullness in his descendants several generations down the line. We hold to hope in a similar way. We have been chosen. We are held in his hand. And our chosenness is not because of what we can or cannot do. It is established by the fact that Christ, the son of David, the son of Zerubbabel, has found perfect favor with God and will not let go of any who are in his hand. And we have confidence in a God who will accomplish what we could not on a time frame longer than our lives last. Now, the mention of these things he's going to accomplish, the overthrowing of kingdoms, the defeating of armies, it's all apocalyptic language. It's into the world stuff, right? The destruction of Gentile kingdoms implies the restoration of a Jewish kingdom, or really, a kingdom of God, which is why the disciples ask in Acts chapter 1, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? And that leads us nicely into Malachi 4. Congratulations, you're done with Haggai. You get full credit for the entire book if you came to church every Sunday in November. If you don't walk out by the end of this sermon, you'll also get another one as we finish Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, the apocalyptic language shows up again. In verse 1 of 4, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. The day of the Lord being spoken of here is, is uh, about coming judgment. And this happens a lot in the Old Testament prophecies where there's, there'll be two verses and the first one has to do with the first coming of Christ and the second one has to do with the second coming of Christ or the other way around. Or they'll exist in the same sentence and they just have two halves and one sounds a little bit like Jesus of Nazareth walking around and the other one sounds like Revelation. Um, uh, and a lot of times we'll do our best to just split those prophecies right down the middle and say that all the good healing stuff happens the first time and that the fire and the judgment is just for the second. Uh, it's not that simple. <laughs> The ver this verse in Malachi 4 seems to be applied to Jesus by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and, and, uh, of Elijah, right? He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
John the Baptist is talking about Jesus, his cousin, who was alive and well and walking in the Jordan, to the Jordan River at that very moment. Israel was promised this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, which we did last week. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. Is this Christ's first or second coming? Well, yeah. It's whenever Jesus shows up in the room. He comes and burns away chaff and cleans with that soap. He burns away sin, then, now, and always. He cleanses from sin, then, now, and in the future. The day of the Lord is most clearly understood to be the day in the future when Christ returns. That's the full, literal meaning. But there's layers to these prophecies. Yeah, verse 1 is talking about people, the, the ones who do wickedly, they will meet their judgment. The attitude of Christ towards wickedness, though, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When Christ comes to you, he is still coming with matches and kindling. Wickedness is still warred against. But for those who fear his name, this war against your sin looks like healing. That's what verse 2 says. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. He's coming like an oven, (laughs) but he's coming like the sun, even brighter. And we're going to say that's a good thing. It says, you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Now, this is, this is the great uh, pre-Advent message. Next week, we start with Advent, right? Because where the Christmas story starts in Luke, it starts with Zechariah, and he says that the, the coming of the Messiah is like the dawning from on high, the dawn. It's when the sun rises. We know this verse about the sun of righteousness. It's about Jesus. He's the one of healing in his wings, the edges of his garments. You know, the edge of one's garments were called wings. Think of the woman with the flow of blood coming and saying, if I could only touch the edge of his garment. She's showing an awareness of this verse, this truth of the son of righteousness who has healing in his wings. And then still in verse 2, we have that other Christmas promise that comes true every year, and you shall go out and grow fat. There it is. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just doing, I'm just, no, I didn't make it up. It's just there in the Bible. Um, and what this really means is you'll be cared for, right? You'll be tended to. You'll be, you'll be cared for. You'll be fed. And when he feeds you, you'll be strong enough for your mission. Verse 3, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Did you know that God wants you to go and wage war against evil? That's your job. Now, there's a sequence for sure that you got to follow. There's a sequence, uh, an order of events. Uh, You know, first, get right with God at the temple. That was chapter 1. Your attitude towards the table of the Lord comes first. This is your meeting with Jesus. The change in behavior and beliefs and dealing with all of society's ills, that's not dealt with before your soul is tended to. You get right with God. It's not complicated, but it can be difficult in its simplicity because it's coming to God with nothing and accepting the everything that he gives you in his son. Malachi chapter 1, it was about worship. Haggai chapter 1, it was about worship. Come to Jesus just as you are and be reconciled to God. Remember the Father's words at the very beginning of the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you. But then... After telling of the importance of coming to dwell in the house of the Lord, Malachi puts the, the individual houses in order, and God will come to you and put your house in order. That was Malachi too, putting your life in order. This happens as a response to ordering your life around Jesus Christ. The reverse, or sorry, to reverse the order is to make a legalistic contract with God where you sort out all of your baggage, and then once that's settled, then you go to the Lord and he'll like you more. Okay, no, that's not gospel. You worship first, then the behavioral changes are next. 
and he is faithful to tend to your heart. As you prioritize the God of your salvation, it will be evident that the things of God are important to you, and your children will see this, your grandchildren will see this, and these lessons that are caught as much as they are taught will be handed down from you. They're not going to be neglected, but there's more. As your wickedness is addressed and dealt with by our gentle, merciful Savior that comes to you with soap, (laughs) he loves you too much to let the stench of sin stay on you. there will, be, there will eventually come a time when not only wickedness, but it says the wicked are addressed. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. When you're walking with God and your house is in order, rest assured you have a ministry in this world and even in the heavenly places. And where the great and effective door is open to you, there will be many adversaries. And the Lord promises victory. We see this, of course, through the lens of Ephesians 6, which tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood which means that the application for this verse for the people of God is spiritual warfare. You are fighting against spiritual realities, and in Christ you are offered victory. Having been fed by the Lord, who has healing in his wings, having our paths illuminated by the rising of the sun of righteousness, we go to war, and we bring our kids. And we're promised victory because it's really the Lord who's doing the fighting. It says this, this is really the heart and soul of the, the great and terrible day of the Lord. When you read that phrase, the great and terrible day of the Lord, and you think of the end of the world. You get the, the imagery of the book of Revelation stuck in your head, and it's not always pretty. And, and there's a bit of dread, probably well-placed. But don't lose sight of this fact. The point of Christ's return is to completely, absolutely defeat evil once and for all. This includes the wiping away of every tear and the healing of every wound. This is the direction we're moving in, which is why this day that comes like a fire for us is healing. We look forward to the day of the Lord. We look back in memory of what God has already done and said. Verse 3 directs our eyes to the future. Verse 4 encourages remembrance. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him from Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Horeb is Sinai, it's Mount Sinai. The law of Moses was received on Sinai. That's the Ten Commandments, along with the 603 other commandments. This was the work of virtually all the prophets that we read of in Scripture. They're there to remind people to study their Bibles and live accordingly. So, hey, remember the law? Remember the covenant? Remember that? And they're pointing back to Moses. So uh, Malachi is no different. Um, He's teaching them to, to seek their God, to walk with him. The prophets are always pointing toward forward to the fulfillment of that law and all of its promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, for us, in the New Covenant, of course, we, we look back all the way to Genesis. We love the whole Bible. That's why we've been in the Old Testament every Sunday this month. But really, in another sense, we look back to the cross, and in that image, we remember all that God has said and done. Um, when Malachi says, remember the law, he's saying, remember what God has said. But then we get to the book of Hebrews, and we say, yeah, in former times, God spoke through prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us in Son. Everything that God has said, he said in Christ. We look at the final word of God in Jesus and hope for his return. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we're coming up on the closing words, final words of the, of the Old Testament. This promise. Verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
Now, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is Elijah, kind of. <laughs> Moses is mentioned in verse 4, Elijah in verse 5, both of whom appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Now, I, I said in the first week that this concept of family reunification would serve as a sort of lighthouse in this study. It's the end that we've been heading towards. I want to reiterate that the absence of this familial connection is a cause of Israel's lapses of faith. I need to make the point clear that the neglect of this father-to-child and child-to-father connection would invite, sounds like it would guarantee, a curse. And that the turning of fathers to their children, and likewise, would prevent that curse that was otherwise headed their way. The people of God had forgotten the love of God. They'd come to doubt the love of their father. That was chapter 1, verse 2. Remember the spiritual climate that existed when Malachi came on the scene. Worship was neglected. How did people get there? Well, many factors, of course, but a root one was fathers were neglecting their households, which is what Malachi chapter 2 is all about. And God is now saying to a wayward people that he will send help. He will tend to the hearts that are in need of a redirect. Now, of course, there's personal application that exists here for families. It's not hard to lift off the page the obvious truths that we need to hear. Fathers, lead your families well. Elders, invest your time and your wisdom in younger people. Young people, listen to your parents. Parents, by prioritizing the things of God in your family, you are giving the children of the Lord, sorry, you're giving the children that the Lord has given to you access to their inheritance and training them how to use it. Amen. All of that's there, and we ought to take that seriously. Amen. And we have to take it seriously if we're going to take these scriptures seriously. Now, it's, it's impossible not to see the call in Malachi to families when studying this book, the call especially to husbands and fathers that exists in this book, especially in chapter 2 and 4. It, it's kind of obvious. Right? It's clear that God has determined that there are blessings and curses that depend on the heart's condition of the men who are either leading or neglecting their families. So we as a church, we need to take these warnings and promises seriously, knowing that we are modeling the importance of worship every Sunday and more, uh, the frequency and the fervency with which you worship, how you approach the table of the Lord. Remember that phrase that only Malachi and Paul use, and Paul uses it about communion. How we uh, esteem our worship. Is it a weariness? Is it something important? Is it something serious or light? All of those things are taught, or rather caught, by your children. Our children must see how we come to church. Remember in chapter 1 we saw the worship was seen as a, a wearisome thing. There was an irreverence that pervaded the temple worship. If the parents see worship as that kind of thing, so will the kids. How you worship teaches those around you what you worship. You may be thinking, and many of you are, I don't have young kids. This simply doesn't apply to me. Yeah, you're teaching my kids. It matters to me. Okay, like you're teaching my kids. And that's by design. The children in our church should see the body of Christ come to worship, and they should see reverence when approaching the Lord's table. And they should see the importance of what we do here on Sunday mornings. It's one of the reasons why my kids stay in, in service. It's not just so that they can hear me or because I don't want them to hear from someone else. No, it's so that they can see you. I have my kids in church so that they can see you worship God and receive from his word. 
This is their inheritance, and you are part of passing it on to them, passing on to them the graces that the Lord has given to you. Now, God promises the people of Malachi, people in Malachi, a day when the generational gap and the generational distress that is so often simply taken for granted would be bridged from heart to heart. Find your place in that promise. Now, again, there's practical ways we might think to deal with all of this, and it's going to be different from family to family, depending on where you are in, in the timeline, really. Um, and, and we could all find some sort of personal application, but we would be wrong to end Malachi only with a to-do list. The promises of God run much deeper than that. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Israel is called the children of God throughout the Old Testament. God is their father. John says in 1 John 3, for now we're called children of God. That's a label that you get aware as well. The one who turns the people to their God is the one who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The Father's love, which is easily forgotten by sinners like us, is seen perfectly in the Lamb of God who John declared. Haggai's message, okay, Haggai, other prophet, remember, keep the, the, the older guy, two chapters, not four chapters. Haggai's, Haggai's message to an unclean people was a promise of grace. Malachi, who corrected a generation of men who were not leading their families well, ends with a promise to tend to their hearts, not a command, not an ultimatum. Now, much has been made that the Old Testament ends with that word curse, and it's worth noticing. But if you read those verses, the Old Testament does not end with the pronouncement of a curse. It ends with the promise of its avoidance. <laughs> it's not a command. It's not an ultimatum. It's a promise to turn the hearts of fathers and children towards each other. As such, the end of the message of Malachi cannot only be the to-do list, the personal application. The end of the message we have here is a vision of the goodness of God. God is the father whose heart is for his children. The way in which he has turned our hearts back to the heart of the Father who loves us is in Jesus Christ. Our wayward hearts are reoriented to God in Christ Jesus. We sang this morning, thou must save and thou alone. Our wayward hearts, our, our disordered loves, our irreverent attempts at worship, our apathetic approach to holiness, all of these things are tended to by God himself when our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh and we come to realize the whole truth of the Father's words from chapter 1, verse 2, I've loved you. I'm your Father, and I've loved you. Christ, in laying down his life for his friends, has displayed perfect love. And it's the love the Father has for his children. The curse, all curses, all curses are undone in Jesus. All who are gathered under his wings are saved from the curse of sin and death. That's where the Old Testament ends. Unfulfilled, yes, because Christ wouldn't come for another 400 years. But it's already written that the Son of Righteousness is coming with healing in his wings. And the first guy to get the news, Zechariah, said, I know this. This is from Malachi. The dawn has come. Light is coming. Let us give him glory and thank him for turning our hearts towards him. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you and praise you and give you glory. We thank you that you are faithful to tend to the hearts of fathers and children and everyone in between. We thank you that, that we are yours, that, that you are faithful to do the work in us that we cannot do ourselves. We, we praise you for what you're doing in our church here. 
and in each family here. We pray that we would be faithful with this message of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.